Good morning, everybody. Today is March 16th. This is the birthday of President James Madison. In the past, I've written about the founders, but today we've got a unique opportunity to hear from one. And so I have invited uh, former president, the fourth president of the United States, James Madison, to speak with me today about the issues of the day and how our founders would work around or deal with the issues that are happening that, that need a constitutional response. And one of the things that I've been concerned about as I've listened to what's going on in the world today is, is it constitutional when we make decisions about what's going on in, uh, about the various issues? And so I'm going to talk to, Mr. talk to Mr. Madison about these issues, and we're going to talk about how the Constitution had solutions then and how it's got solutions even today, almost two and a half centuries later. So without any further ado, it's my, it's my privilege and honor to interview the fourth president of the United States, President James Madison. Mr. President, thank you for joining us. How are you today? I'm doing just fine. Thank you, sir. Okay. I, um, I appreciate you taking the time to come with us and let me get right to what's going on. You know, I've had a great appreciation for what the um, what the founders did and the miracle that occurred after you went from the Articles of Confederation to the Constitution, because the, the Articles didn't have the power to sustain the new nation at the time. And I wonder if you would take a few minutes to address just how well that worked out. Well, so the... If, you, if you're talking about the limitations of the Articles of Confederation, the Articles of Confederation really only created a, a, a limited general government that was constrained in, in, in financial respects as well as in foreign affair respects. Even though the Continental Congress did have their own ability to create treaties and so forth, the states also maintained their ability or they didn't relinquish their ability in being able to create trade deals and uh, treaties and associations with other nations. And so this became really a problem because as all of the states were creating their own deals, it just basically marginalized the Continental Congress's ability to interact and to create a superior uh, lead or become the lead principle for our foreign affairs. And so the need for a, a more vigorous and a more energetic general government was obviously necessary for that one purpose as well as for taxation. But so the founders at some point must have recognized that there was an issue because uh, I don't think even England took the nation seriously. No, they didn't. Um, yeah, and so um, but, what? So we realized as soon as, as soon as the yeah. Articles of Confederation were drying, we realized a, a lot of shortfalls within the Articles of Confederation because one of them was it required a unanimous uh, approval of the states. All 13 states needed to approve any type of change that came, you know, that we wanted to inject into the Constitution. Some of that was taxation. Some of that was creating treaties and so forth. 
And that became a complete obstacle because Rhode Island was always one state that would refuse to get involved in allowing any type of changes in granting the the central government or the Continental Congress more power to be able to do what it needed to do to have the necessary power to function in its capacity that it was what it was designed to do. So that apparently really tied the nation's hands, didn't it? Yes, it did. And, and there, we actually called Rhode Island Rogue Island at the time. It was a it was a uh, kind of a um, I'll, I'll just say a term of endearment for their obstinance. <laughs> so, so at this point, at some point, America came to the realization that, that this wasn't going to work. I mean, there was a turning point somewhere in which, which the states and the people realized that something needed to be different. And so I guess if I understand correctly, we needed the the states determined that they needed to change the Articles of Confederation. Now there is um, there is a typical uh, a constant argument on both sides of this of something that's going on today that the Constitution Convention, which you, Mr. Madison, pretty much spearheaded, was a runaway convention and. I'm just wondering for our audience, how would you address that? Well, so actually, that was addressed in Federalist Paper Number 40, where I basically responded to the assertion that it was a. I don't think we used the term runaway at the time, but the term was that we exceeded our scope. And to be clear, the scope was very well penned and denned to allow us to provide the necessary changes to save the union, which basically allowed us to really rely upon those fundamental principles that basically created the foundation of this republic in the Declaration of Independence that went upon trains of abuses. And clearly, there were states that were abusing their their power within this union requiring this you know 100 percent uh, unanimous agreement and they were holding back the ability for the union to evolve and for the union to succeed it was very it was very well recognized in the first year as a matter of fact we started having conventions or meetings calling for a convention to amend and or to make modifications to the to the articles of confederation which ended up creating the constitutional convention and so <clears throat> there were 3 years leading into that and Annapolis was the last conference where it was agreed upon that we would meet in Philadelphia in May of 1787 to basically amend or provide the necessary changes, I want to make that clear, to provide the necessary changes to make the union more successful. And if you want to look at the language, it's right there in the Federalist Papers 40 for you. Okay. Well, yeah, forgive me. Uh, the term runaway convention is something that we use here in the 21st century. But the other thing that comes, the words that immediately come to mind with that are the words from the Declaration of Independence that the people have the right to alter or abolish. Right. 
a form of government when it doesn't meet their ends. And so these founders were being were being true to the to the principles outlined in the in in the Declaration, weren't they? That is correct. Correct, because okay. again, the the abuses were becoming very evident as soon as the ink was drying. There was enough obstinance that we realized that we were doomed to fail, and though we didn't foresee this French Revolution that occurred just a few years later. Had we not gone through this constitutional convention and applied the necessary energies and applied the necessary changes to to this union in creating a new government under the new constitution, there's a it, it was I'll just say it was not even just likely it was going to become the evident thing that France would have came to America under Napoleon and would have demanded to extract their pounds of flesh because we owed them millions of dollars. Okay. That's, that's interesting. So um, I know that um, at some point, George Washington it referred to things changed after the Constitution happened, after the Constitution was instituted. And I know that George Washington had said, he, was, he had written to someone named David Humphreys and said that if I had... I'm paraphrasing, realized the benefit and the positive benefit that happened after the Constitution, uh, you know, considering the years of trouble that they had during the, uh, during the days of the Articles of Confederation, I would have considered it a species of madness. So there must have been a really dramatic change that happened after the Constitution was instituted and ratified. Well, yeah, it was because it actually brought the nation together. And even though there was still some, I'll say, begrudging acceptance by Rhode Island, the, and, and South Carolina was slow in, in joining, actually North Carolina, my mistake, North Carolina was slow in joining the Union. They They recognized that they needed to. It was just that it was more of an administrative function. They just ran out of time as they were debating. They didn't allow themselves enough time, so they had to wait a year before they could join the union. That being said, that being said, there were some significant changes because it really galvanized the general government's controls and and the ability to, in its supremacy in maintaining treaties and and foreign engagements. Because the federal, the energy of the federal government was outward facing, and they were responsible and and are responsible under the Constitution for national security, foreign affairs, and those types of things, as well as foreign trade. And so everything domestic was left to the states to be able to choose and delegate for themselves how they wanted to administer any type of domestic affairs. Okay, that's pretty sweet. So. Now, I want to transition to something else, and that is that I've, I've really, there has been in, in these last couple centuries a great dependence on um, the Federalist Papers. I have really enjoyed your, your record of the Constitutional Convention, James Madison's notes on the Convention of 1787, and I've often preferred those to the Federalist Papers. But apparently, um, there's something more, something that's been missed. And I guess maybe if you take a few minutes to elaborate on why you didn't publish 
the federal the uh, your notes while you're living and give us some idea what's what's a better option well so the notes were an insight in the the debates and the sentiments of the different states and the different delegates within the constitutional convention however they they may have provided the insights and it gave people i think a good reference point as to you know how we debated and how we discussed and how we came to some compromises in 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 writing the constitution the real magic the real i'll just say the luster of the constitution didn't come from the convention itself the luster of the constitution really came from the ratification debates because this is where the states provided their, uh, I'll just say, their arguments against this. There were basically seven states that vigorously argued against the Constitution. And these states were really trying to make sure that the Constitution was not going to be accepted because each of these states had a lot of power and they didn't want to give up that power Virginia was one, and I came from Virginia, and I was at the Virginia ratification debates, and it was evident that there were powers that be, the Anti-Federalists, and Patrick Henry was the man in charge of the Anti-Federalists, or he was basically leading the argument against the Constitution, and in those arguments, it was very clear that he was trying to protect the state's power and the state's interest. He put the state above the union and understanding that, you know, there's this fear of the unknown. Everything was debated. And as we basically went through the ratification debates, as we defined the constitution, that was precisely how the constitution was to be understood. And as a matter of fact, much later after the constitutional convention, John G. Jackson came to me. This was in 1821. He he actually asked me if I would present and actually pro provide copies of my notes on the Constitutional Convention. And as I told him, it didn't matter what we thought. It didn't matter what we described or how we basically defined this Constitution. What really mattered is that the Constitution and how it was defined to the state's and how the states understood it at the time of ratification is the only definitions, the only terms that were critical. Because under contract law, under the agreement, under the ratification process, as the states came to accept how the Constitution was sold to them, that became the legal foundation of what the Constitution really meant. And so it was our obligation as the states, as individuals, to understand and recognize that so that as we moved forward with this new government, we would operate based on those terms and definitions provided in the ratification debates. Well, that's wonderful because it apparently the ratification debates were deliberated by a representative body from the counties of the states in each state. Yes. Uh, or conventions in each state. Yes. And therefore, they I can see where you're saying the legal definitions for what we what we would ex expect the Constitution to follow would come from those ratification debates. That's something I think that's been lost probably for decades. And in fact, I wasn't even familiar with them until within 
within the last year and a half. So in terms of value, in, in terms of what what the people should consider today, where would you rank, if we're looking at the Federalist Papers, your notes, the Madison's notes, and the ratification debates, where how would you rank them? And I'm guessing you'd rank the ratification debates at the top. Well, absolutely. As, as a matter of fact, the nation is responsible and obligated to operate and or oversee this federal government and this federal experiment, this union, based on how the Constitution was defined during those ratification debates. The Federalist Papers were interesting arguments, and to be honest, there were many anti-Federalist comments and arguments that were never printed in the newspapers. In other words, there was not a true discourse that we had like we had in the debates during the ratification debates. And so the Federalist and Anti-Federalist arguments that were, were taking on in the press, that was really more for the public view, but it had no legal context. We weren't under oath. We were just providing insights to what this, con- this new constitution would be and how it would you know, help and, and how it answered the problems of, of the failings of the Articles of Confederation. Well... That you just led me to a good segue to another matter, and that is you said you're under oath, which is what our public servants take and what the Constitution requires of any public servant. So if if you would take a few minutes, I know back then, yeah, help me understand an oath is like a contract. The, the Constitution was a contract or a compact between the states. And then our elected office holders or even appointed office holders take an oath to support and to support that contract. And so um, how well was that appreciated back then? Well, so in contrast, in, in looking at your time today, yes. back in our time, a man's word, a man's honor, a man's reputation meant more to him than life itself. It was very common that when there was a disagreement or when somebody basically sullied the reputation of an individual, then it would be very common for that individual to challenge that person to a duel, to basically say either you retract what you just said or I'm willing to die to defend my reputation. And so it was a time of civility. It wasn't a time where we just became brutes and went fist to cuffs and started gouging out eyes and and that incivil behavior that became, you know, a thing of the past. And it was a long time coming because it took hundreds of years to move from that brute force into this civil discourse and this civil way of basically resolving one's reputation when it's being sullied or being challenged or impugned and that unfortunately went by the wayside i think that something was lost in society when they started outlawing the duel it was a lot of us were looking at it as kind of a repugnant that people were dying for that but more importantly when a man doesn't have his honor when a man doesn't have his integrity then a man is worthless and so as, as we look at the, the importance of the oath in context to your question, 
when we take an oath of office, that becomes a legally binding process. It, it actually holds us accountable to have to perform what we've taken an oath to do. If we fail to do that, then we have sullied our own name and our own nature. That's certainly a message that ought to be sent out today. And so I appreciate you sharing that. Let me, we've got a couple of other things that I want to get to while we have some time. So let me ask you about, I've got two questions and you can answer them in the order that, that you wish. One of them has to do with the biggest challenge you had as president during your administration. And the other one has to do with the, the issue that brought about the Kentucky and the Virginia resolutions. Because I don't think the, those two are understood what actually happened. Today, there's a lot of talk from states about nullification. And I'd like you to clarify that. So there's two questions there. Biggest challenge in your administration and the, and the, the real message of the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions. Sure. So the the two hardest parts in my presidency are the two parts that were the most difficult for me to execute. The first one was shutting down the slave trade. I think that that was one thing that uh, as I look in the annals of history and how it was written, I truly believe that that was something that was marginalized because as president and actually as a member of the Continental uh, convention, or I should say the Constitutional Convention, as that delegate that actually pointed to that 1808 clause, it was, I would just say, divine justice that I was at least able to, to, to be mindful as president in 1808 that that was, or I was elected in 1808, and so I was able to actually execute the shutting down of the slave trade, but it was not easy to do because the, many of the southern states that were importing slaves just failed to abide by the Constitution. So we actually had to use some force in sending ships and Navy down to ensure that they weren't having direct trade. And they played some shenanigans in trying to bypass you know, a direct importation from from the Africa or from the Mediterranean, and they were bringing slaves down into the Central American and South American, and then coming into the the ports. But it was it was one of our, my biggest and most arduous tasks because it was clearly one an execution that had to occur under the Constitution because that clause existed, and secondly. It needed to put the, the, the nation down this path where the nation would finally have to deal with this problem called slavery. We really wanted to get rid of this in the Constitutional Convention, but there were three states that stepped forward and said, the Union will not survive because we will walk if you actually force us. And that was Georgia and the two Carolinas. The second thing that was probably the most difficult was trying to work out a, a treaty with Britain because it just seemed like Britain was just hell-bent on trying to hold America as a as the one that got away and they weren't going to let us go. And so we just kept on dealing with impressments, which basically drove us to the War of 1812. And, right. and 
And interestingly enough, even though we've had several presidents since my term, it's interesting that there's never been a president like myself who's actually been more suited to lead troops in battle, but I was the only president to ever do that. Tell me what you mean by that. Well, I want to get to the... I want, to, I want to get to the um, the resolutions, but tell me what you mean by that. Well, this was the only time where we actually had warfare on American soil where my White House and D.C. was actually burnt to the ground. And I actually had to play the job as commander-in-chief, not having any training or not having any experience. Fortunately, my Secretary of State, James Monroe, was was a was was there to help me and to support me and basically buoy me up. And my function as commander in chief was to actually lead our forces in basically pushing back and getting Britain out of our britches in DC and and on on the eastern coast. Eventually the the war ended with this interesting battle in the south with Andrew Jackson, but most people look at the 1812 war as, you know, an insignificant war. But it was truly the war that ended British paradigm that we got away. We are and will be and will always be independent of Britain. So they just, in their minds, they just weren't done with America. And, 18, and you're, you happen to be, by providence, apparently the right person in the right place at the right time. I, I, could, I, 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 couldn't, I, I can't affirm that. I just believe that the Lord was with me, and I think he would have been with whoever was at the helm. Okay. All right. I'll accept that. Um, okay, let's go to let, – let me make one more diversion before we get to the resolutions. And that is, in, in these days and, – and there are a couple of issues I want to get to about today – but one of them is something that's going on in our schools and our, our education, and there's a mindset, there's a paradigm, okay? There's something going on now called critical race theory. And, and part of it um, um, demonizes, maybe that's too strong a word, but it doesn't show a good light in the Constitution except, that it, except as something that was written for rich white men. I'm wondering if you would address that. That's a challenging question, but it's one that needs to be addressed today. Actually, if you read the Federalist Papers, I I was clear in pointing out that we and I didn't have much faith in the common man. However, we wrote a constitution and created a government for the common man, which means not a man of a particular race, not a man of a particular culture or of a mindset. We wrote this for a self-government so that all people would have interest and ability to get involved. You didn't need to be a lawyer. And as a matter of fact, in 1812, we also ratified an amendment that was called the Nobility Amendment, the Nobility Clause, which basically made it so that if you were considered a lawyer or an esquire in the Bar Association, what we call today the Bar Association, you could not be a public service, a public servant, forgive me. The important part is that anybody, it didn't require a law degree, it did not require any standards, anybody could be a public servant. The only requirement 
was for a person to support the Constitution to the letter. You can't cherry-pick what you want to support or what you want to do. And there is nothing within the Constitution that allows political compromise to change what the Constitution's roles, responsibilities, and powers for the general government are to be. I mean, surely there can be a political compromise on whether we declare war or not, but they cannot create a political compromise because both sides agree to usurp some new power or to take on some new role or responsibility that is not enumerated within the Constitution. In other words, like any contract, the Constitution is a compact or a contract that needs to be followed. Yes. Okay? You can't call... There, there's another thing we, we hear a lot, that the Constitution today is a living document. Well, what is a living contract? Yeah, if you have something like that, then, then where's the foundation in contract law? And so uh, that's something I think that is missed today. Uh, so it's the other thing is about the nobility clause. That's an interesting thing. I don't know what happened to that to that amendment. I've heard of it. And these days it's referred to as the original 13th Amendment. Yes. And maybe at some, some other time we'll be able to follow that. Let's go. Let's get to the resolutions now. You got the Kentucky and the Virginia resolutions, and there was a catalyst that brought these about. And, and I think that's important for our audience to understand uh, so that we can have a, a, a round, a fully formed picture of this idea of nullification and what it's for and, and how we're really supposed to respond to, to runaway government. Well, so in 1798, the John Adams administration in Congress, actually Congress created a bill because John Adams actually brokered for the bill that they wanted to curb the rhetoric and the hyperbole that was coming from the political side in campaigning. And what they were trying to do was they were trying to silence any type of political uh, comments and or criticism so that you couldn't criticize those people in office. And that was clearly John what, Adams, John Adams. And that was, John, that's, that sounds like what we're doing today. <laughs> I'm sorry. Go ahead. So go ahead. What they were trying to do was they were trying to eliminate the ability to, to really call out and hold people accountable to, I, you know, call them out for what they were doing. And it was, a limitation of political speech. The the Alien and Sedition Acts were really a true limitation of speech, which violated the Bill of Rights. It violated the Constitution. And so J Thomas Jefferson and myself wrote resolutions. Thomas Jefferson wrote for Kentucky, and I wrote and actually worked with the Virginia legislature in crafting the Virginia response to the Kentucky resolutions. The intent and the design was to pull the union together as the arbiters, as the states being the final arbiters, that they could stand and actually make a final judgment by arresting this evil that John Adams and Congress was trying to pull out and force them into compliance. Now, the concept that you brought forward of nullification, that came much later where 
South Carolina, and southern states in a response to the unconstitutional taxations and tariffs that they were placing upon goods that were going into South Carolina created an excessive burden. But South Carolina and John, John C. Calhoun came up with this idea that they could, as a single state, nullify the laws. But as a member of the union, even though these laws may be a violation of the Constitution, as a member of the union, the union and each member is obligated to work with one another, one, to comply to whatever the laws are, and if they are violations, then they must work together in interposing against the federal government all those violations to force them into compliance. No state, no single state could just nullify the laws. What they would have to do, and it's clear, their objective, if they do not want to follow laws that are part of the union, then they need to secede from the union. Wow, that almost sounds like, you to use the word secede, that sounds like what happened in what later became you know, the Civil War, where we had states that did secede. Are you saying that they were correct? Yes, yes, because as the northern states and as Congress was creating laws that were violating, the Congress's responsibility in Article One, Section A, that they have to be uniform in how they apply taxes, excises, imposts, and so forth. And as they were creating an additional taxation or an additional burden upon the southern states, that was violating the uniformity clause. Therefore, as they were doing that, the southern states were at that point free to be able to secede. And having that freedom to secede, it, would, it basically allowed them to basically create a new government and a new confederation. Hmm. That would be um, that would be a paradigm shift for us today to consider to consider that. So, okay. So, it, looking at what's going on today, all right, we have we have what appears to be uh, um, I call it the myth of federal supremacy, and. I think there's something that the states have power to do about this. But what has happened is when, when King George in the Treaty of Paris recognized the states, they recognized the 13 states as individual, independent, and sovereign states, each one of them. And, and I, I purport that the term state was synonymous with a state like what we consider France, Germany, or England. But that, that we were a federation or a confederation of, of truly independent and, and self-governing states. But what we have today is more like uh, uh, an overarching federal government, which the states are treated like counties or provinces. And so how would you address that? How would, how would the people go about addressing that? I detect that we probably don't have a lot more time, and so this is a big one that I'd like to, I'd like to have answered. So how would we address the independent sovereignty of the states? I'm not sure I understand well, the, the question. The, the, the overarching, this, this 
the federal government has somehow in the, in this last hundred or so years made itself supreme. I see. Not the Constitution. I see. But the federal government. Okay. And I think, and you use the term interposition, mm-hmm. and I think that's something that our audience would would be interested in knowing about or how to work. So the government that we created in today's terms would be considered a hybrid. We created a general government, and in essence, there was a formation of a federation, but it wasn't a federation per se, where the bulk of the powers were delegated to the federal government. Only limited and very few powers and specific powers were delegated to the federal government, leaving the residual to the states, where the states had the majority of the roles, responsibilities, and powers that to their avail. They were able to do anything to manage their domestic, the production of produce, or the I should say the, the production of foods, products, and, and coming into revenue, and however they wanted to interact with the states as long as they interacted fairly, where they weren't creating burdens and taxations and taking on economic warfare against each other. Bottom line, as we look at the the form of government, we really maintained the Confederacy by forming a limited federation. It became a hybrid constitutional Confederacy. Okay. So, so how... Ooh. Sorry about that. I don't know if you heard that, but my alarm just went off. Okay. So we are, it looks like we need to wrap up. Okay. We've got a couple minutes left. This hybrid confederacy, we're, we're facing some challenges in the United States today. Okay. And, and what you left us in that, that the people, it would seem to me that the people in the States have power to bring to bear on a federal government that is out of control. And based on what you've told me, or based on what you've told us, that we've got, we've got the ability within the Constitution to, to require the federal government to live within its enumerated powers. Yes. So the, the relationship between the states and the federal government is pretty simple if you look at it in, in, in a personal relationship where the states are the parents because the states are what created the federal government. The states are what created the Constitution. It was only until the states bought into this new form of government that they then created both the Constitution or ratified it and then created the federal government. So the problem that you're facing today is that the states aren't working together as parents and they're being divided by this little manipulative child they created. And so the the success or the key to success for today is getting the states to actually work together in identifying basically what we did in identifying all of the violations and calling the federal government out and calling them upon full compliance to the Constitution. And therefore, in, in doing that, we would actually be able to force the federal government using political energies into compliance to the Constitution. Okay. Mr. President, Mr. Madison, I'm, I'm so grateful that we, you took the time with me 
I forgot to forgot to wish you happy birthday. Um, Thank but, you so uh, much. I'm <laughs> grateful you took the time to explain to me and explain to your to our audience something more than just a little bit of the statistics or history about who James Madison is, but what you experienced and what drove you, what led you to make the decisions that you did. I really appreciate this time that we've had together. And um, I, I'm great. We're grateful for the sacrifice and the work that you did to make America what to give America a good start. Thank you very much. Thank you.